Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, and I, I praise you for your presence in this place. You, you are near to us. You, you are present here. And so might we increase our awareness of your presence, turn our attention towards it, that we might stand in awe and marvel at the beauty and the wonder and the splendor of Christ, that in this next hour, would, would you reveal your glory to us? Would we see our need for that, to taste it, to touch it, to see it, to behold the wonder and the splendor of Christ? Might there, might there never be in our lives another day where we treasure something, where we value something more than we value you? Might we give the rest of our days to seeking and knowing the beauty and the worth, the all-surpassing worth of Christ? Would you help us to see that this morning as we seek to be molded into your image? I pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat> we are continuing in a initiative this morning uh, that we've been in for the past uh, six weeks now. Uh, we are, this is the seventh week that we've been in this thing that we're calling the path of flourishing. And the path of flourishing, um, it really just answers the question, man, how do I have a flourishing relationship with Jesus? What do I need to do? What do I need to understand and know? How do I live in a manner that's going to uh, result in a flourishing relationship with Jesus? And so we've, we've talked about there's kind of four main what we're calling pathways uh, that we're unpacking together here at Flourishing Grace. And we've unpacked the first two, right? We have talked about um, what it looks like to behold Jesus and the need to behold Jesus. We must attach ourselves to the vine, right? Uh, we, we, must, we must abide in him. And as we abide in him and as we look to him, as we fix our gaze upon him, then our lives begin to change. We're gonna talk even more about that a little bit this morning. But then we moved on and we talked about uh, following Jesus, not just attaching ourselves to him, but abiding in his word. So we, yes, we abide in Christ, but we abide in his word. To follow Jesus means that we root every area of life in his teaching. And so we are, we're, we're thinking about our marriages, we're thinking about our careers, we're thinking about our politics, we're thinking about um, all of our beliefs and how we carry ourselves, our, our overall attitudes, um, maybe our grumpiness, maybe our anger, maybe our, our sorrow, maybe our grief. And we're taking all of that, we're rooting it into the word of Jesus and we're following him. We're following after his way, right? Um, and so we are <clears throat> beholding Jesus and we are following Jesus. Now this morning we're gonna begin this brand new pathway this morning. We haven't talked about it at all yet. Uh, becoming like Jesus, becoming like Jesus. And really what becoming like Jesus is, it's a, it's a cry for help. Because if, if you seek to follow Jesus and if you seek to behold Jesus, you're never actually gonna become like him under your own power and your own strength. It's just not possible. We need help in order to do that. You cannot do this alone. So many people seek to follow Jesus and wind up following a list, <clears throat> a list of things to do and not do, rather than a man. Or they follow a religion and not a person. 
while these lists and organizations claim to help us in our pursuit to find human flourishing, unless they drive us to Jesus again and again and again, they are of no help. They lead us in circles with a carrot and a stick, saying, do these things, and then, and then you'll flourish Give to our organization, and then, and then Jesus will love you more. Uh, if, you just, if you just behave in this certain way, uh, then life is all going to work out, and it's going to be going to be great for you. If you just give enough money, uh, then, and then you'll have a flourishing relationship with Jesus. And they just lead you in these circles where they just kind of, you're just kind of in this trap. Uh, last week we read that quote, talking about the phone, but kind of this, this hamster wheel of faith where you're just, you're just running and running and running. And some of you have been there. Like, you've experienced that. Like, you've been doing all the right things, all the right things, waiting on these promises that never actually come. That there's no flourishing in that, friends. We need help. We can't do this alone. Becoming like Jesus does not mean that we simply try to act more like Jesus. Let me say that again. Becoming like Jesus does not mean that we simply try to act more like Jesus. That's not how this works. Becoming like Jesus is a supernatural transformation of the heart and the mind that comes as a result of beholding and following him. Behavioral modification is not the goal of life, and it is for sure not the goal of the path of flourishing, right? Um, we, we fall into this trap of thinking, man, if I, just, if I just act better, if I just do things better, if I could just become a better person, then I would flourish. That's not how it works. In fact, it's the opposite. As Jesus brings flourishing into our lives, our lives begin to change. As Jesus begins to take root in our lives and as we root our lives in him, he begins to transform our minds and our hearts to look more like his, okay? So flourishing actually precedes the transformation, right? We, we begin to flourish. We begin to have a relationship with Jesus, and then he transforms us into deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper flourishing. Now, <clears throat> human transformation is possible, right? It's, it's in our nature, to, to become like someone else, okay, from, from one human to another, all right? It's in your nature to, to pick up on some of the things that other people in your life do. And, and all of us in the room have experiences at some point in time in our life that where you, you've worked closely with somebody or you've lived with somebody, maybe a roommate, maybe a spouse, um, maybe a boss, not that you lived with your boss, but that you worked so closely with your boss that they've influenced your life, right? Um, this is for sure true of me. Um, and you guys have seen a lot of the things that my old bosses have instilled in me. Like you, you see it every single Sunday, right? Uh, when I was in Chicago, um, which is where we lived for about 10 years before we moved to Utah, uh, I had a boss there. His name was J.R. Kerr. And J.R. Um, was, was a brilliant uh, communicator, preacher. Um, and he talked, he would stand right on the, on the edge of the stage, and he would go like this with his hands. Has anybody ever seen that before? Anybody ever experienced that? Okay, every single Sunday. Um, where do I get that? I get that from J.R. Carr. Uh, my first boss in ministry was a guy named Tim, Tim Henderson. And if you guys have heard me talk, if you've been around, you've heard me talk about Tim a lot. Tim would always say, I think, I, I think, and he would do this with his hand, I, I think. Now, I do that less and less because it's been about 12 years since um, I worked with Tim, but I, I think, um, you guys seen that before? 
Yeah, it's like I'm screwing my, I'm screwing my point like into your soul. I don't know what that is, um, but Tim did that, and, and I just picked it up. I just began, began doing it. And, and I can really go to all of these guys that have influenced my life, and I can point out things that I do because they did it. And I was just around them enough and watched them enough that I just kind of began doing what they do. Um, and this is kind of a human nature, right, to, to begin doing things that other people do. Have you ever, guys ever experienced that? You just kind of begin to do something or say something that other people do or say? Am I alone? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> sometimes, sometimes you're like, dang it, I wish I didn't pick that thing up from that person. Um, we won't mention those. Um, but the reality is, is that when it comes to our faith in Jesus, this is what you must understand. Simply being around Jesus is not enough. Okay? Um, Simply, simply beholding Jesus, just kind of studying his life, is not enough to transform you into his likeness. Here's why. Everything in you is opposed to everything in him. Like, you can't pick this up naturally. Um, here's how Paul says it in Galatians. In Galatians 5, 17 Paul says, for the desires of the flesh. Now, when he says flesh, he's not talking about skin, okay? He's talking about humanity, okay? Just kind of the human, human person. The desires of humans are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here, here it is. At the core level of who you are, your soul is opposed to the way of Jesus. Your soul is opposed to doing the things that the Spirit of Christ in you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've actually given your life to him, the Spirit of Christ has taken up residence inside of your life, and he's saying, let's go this way, and everything in you, and your, and your broken, sinful nature is saying, no, 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 this way. And they're at war with each other. And all day, every day, the spirit in us is pulling us this way, and our, and our, our flesh, our human nature is pulling us this way, right? This is, this is, you're not going to just naturally become like Jesus. You're not going to wake up one day by mistake and, and become like Jesus. It doesn't work the way it works with guys like Tim or JR. Jesus is different. My soul opposes the way of the spirit of Christ in my Life, And so what religion does, kind of religion comes along and says, all right, if you, just, if you just dig deeper and you become more disciplined, right, discipline's the key. You just have to work harder to be more like Jesus. If you, just, if you just do more things, if you just check off the checklist, if you can just work a little bit harder, if you just lived a little bit more disciplined life, then you would be like Jesus. Friends, I'm here to tell you, dis discipline is great. You, we should live disciplined lives but not for the sake of becoming more like Jesus. Like not, not, yes, discipline helps us to follow Jesus. Discipline helps us to behold Jesus. But when it comes to actually becoming like him, discipline is of, of really no use to us. Like it's, it's not going to cut it. In fact, it's going to drive us in the wrong direction. Um, you see, the nation of Israel uh, gets a bad rap for being just pathetic, right, when it comes to their relationship with God. Like, again and again and again, like, we, we just rag on them. We're like, what is wrong with them? Because they just constantly do the wrong thing. But I want to show you something from uh, Deuteronomy 6. 
Deuteronomy 6 describes the way the nation of Israel approaches the law of God, the law of Moses, okay? Here's what they said. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 9, this is Moses talking. He says, or the Lord, through Moses, saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Now listen. And these words I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, so when it comes to obedience to the law of Moses, right? This law that God has given the nation of Israel. And they take this really seriously. It's, it's written on the doorpost of the house. It's written on the gate. They would put it in a box and they would tie it to their head. And the box would sit right here. Literally, literally it's, it's on their face. All right, it's on their hand. It's everywhere they go. They're teaching it to their children. They're talking about it when they're sitting. They're talking about it when they're laying down. They're talking about it when they're walking. They're talking about it when they get up in the morning. Constantly talking about the law. This is an incredibly disciplined people, no? Like, does that describe you with the way of Jesus? Are you, are you walking around with it, like, literally on your face? No. Like this, is, this is an incredibly disciplined people. And, and yet, what's the first commandment? Ten commandments. What's the first one? Don't be shy. What? I can't hear you. You, should, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. Um, is there any story in the Old Testament about the nation of Israel breaking that commandment? Oh, you know one, or 50, right? It's all of them. It's, it's, it's everywhere, right? And so you have this insanely disciplined people who are passionate about the law, and they can't even keep the first commandment, like the, like the very first one. And, and if you can't keep no other gods before me, what hope do you have of actually holding any of the rest of them? Like there is no hope, right? You have the insanely disciplined people who... Who, who just break command after command after command after command throughout all of the Old Testament. It's basically the story of an insanely disciplined people breaking all of the things they're insanely disciplined on. Now, some of you in the room are super type A. And you're like, yeah, no, I can do it. Like, uh, just watch me. Like, uh, watch me become like Jesus. I, I can do that. I can become like Jesus. You, you just just Watch me. Um, and, and you've got this figured out. Now, here's, here's what happens when we actually are disciplined enough. Because some people are. Some people are disciplined enough to keep all of the rules. But in keeping all the rules, you never actually become like Jesus. Because Jesus is not in the rules. He's not in the rules. Think, think about it for a moment. Um, who, who are the people who kept all of the Rules. Who are the people who obeyed all of these things in, in, the, in the Bible? Who are the people who just nailed it? Pharisees. Okay, there we go, the Pharisees, yeah. 
the Pharisees, what the Pharisees did was they would take these, these laws of Moses, there's 600 and some odd laws of Moses, and they, for every single one of them, they would put more rules around each one. And so you might have one law that has like, 20 to 30 rules around it. Not that, not that God gave them, but they, they created themselves because they were so unbelievably serious about keeping the law. They're so type A and so passionate about being perfectly obedient to the law. They would say, okay, here's the law. Like, here's the edge. Don't cross that. All right, so we're going to put up a guardrail here. I'm going to paint the line here so that everybody can see it. I'm going to build like a, a fence here. I'm going to go back a little farther and build a taller fence so that kids can't see it because if they see it, Oh my gosh, they're going to want to do it. No, no, They do all of these things so they can perfectly keep the law. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Like, you are so dead inside. Like you have, you've, you have kept the law, but you don't even know who God is. It requires mercy, not obedience. Like, you, you, your heart is so hardened it's so, you're so blind to what God actually longs for your life. You're so blind to what true flourishing actually is because you've been so consumed with just keeping all the rules. And so, so even if you could be disciplined enough, even if you could be like the religious boy scout that just like checks off every single box and is just perfectly polished in every single way and you just look so good inside what's happening to you, just riding away because Jesus is not in the rules. He's not, he's not in the law. The law drives us to Christ because the law says, you can't do it without me. But if, if you never actually admit that you can't do it without him, if you keep saying, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, you're never actually going to find him. You're never actually going to find the source of all human flourishing. So what do we need, friends? We need the grace of Christ. What we need is a heart modification, not simply a behavioral modification. There must be an inward transformation of the heart where our hearts and our minds become that of the same heart and mind of Christ. Right? We, we, need a, we need an inward modification of our heart and mind, not an outward modification of our behavior. Even if you were disciplined enough and good enough to modify your behavior and say, look how amazing I am. Inside your mind and your heart are withering away because Christ is not there. You have not gone. And we need the grace of Christ in our life. And here's how Paul puts it. This is kind of the text for the day. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. Here's what he says. And he's going to be referencing Exodus 34. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. Since we, followers of Jesus, have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, they read the old covenant. That same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away? Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, to Christ, the Lord of lords, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of Christ, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Paul is describing not someone who um, checks off all the boxes. He's describing someone who not, doesn't just get it all right all the time. Some kind of super religious guy who's like, look, look at all that I've created. He's describing someone who has been radically transformed from the inside out. He's referencing uh, Exodus 34, where uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he comes back with the tablets, the Ten Commandments, right? In his face, from being in the glory of God, his face is glowing, like freakishly alien something. And the people, his own brother and the people of Israel are like, I'm not going anywhere near that guy. Like, that's, that's trippy. I don't want that. And so they put a veil over his face. And every time he would go into the, into the, the, the tent, uh, the Holy of Holies, and he would meet with the Lord, he would come out, and his face was shining, and he had glory of God, and he would say whatever God told him to say, and then they'd put the veil back over his face. They're like, I can't look at that. Like, that's, that's creepy, man. I don't want to see that. And Paul says, man, to this day, to this day, when people are trying so hard to, to, to obey Moses, rather than have a relationship with God, their hearts and their minds both are veiled. Both their minds cannot cognitively understand and see their need for Jesus, and their hearts have no affection for him. Their hearts have no treasuring for them. But when Christ comes into our life, when the, the Lord of Lords burst in, and when we come to the end of ourselves and we say, Man, I can't do this without, without your help. I cannot do this without you. I have sought to try to live an obedient life. I have sought to, to, to live in a way, a man that's worthy of the gospel. And I've failed again and again and again. I need help. When Christ bursts into our lives, the veil is removed. We see our need for a Savior. And suddenly the gospel becomes clear to us. All of the law of Moses shines forth and we see the beauty of the glory of God in it. That God has taught us for generations that a sacrifice is required for our sins. A sacrifice is required for our failure, for our shortcoming. And that no matter how hard we try, we continue to make these sacrifices again and again and again and again and again. I need a Savior. And then we look to the cross and we see the ultimate sacrifice of our God. God has made a propitiation for our sins. He, he has become the sacrifice. His flesh, his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, his flesh, his blood, ripped apart, torn apart, bled out on the cross. And now, now we with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of the Lord. And as we gaze the cross of Christ, we are transformed. The spirit of Christ does a work in us. From one degree of glory to another, he is, he is stripping away the old and he is bringing in the new. This is the work of Christ alone. The grace of Christ alone can transform my heart. The grace of Christ alone can transform my mind. I cannot do this. I cannot do this. I'm helpless without it. 
And only the person who comes to a place of complete and total surrender will ever find complete and total hope. And so we must, we must fix our gaze on the glory of the Lord. If only there was a place, if only there was a place where we could go to see the glory of God. I mean, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be great if there was a place we go to see the glory of God? Alan, skip, skip down to, uh, or Brett, skip down to Hebrews 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1. He, Jesus, he, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. After making a purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. You, you want to see the glory of God. Behold the risen Christ, fix your gaze on his cross and say, glory be to God for, for what he has done for me. Glory be to God for lifting the veil from my mind and lifting the veil from my heart and, and giving me an affection for Christ. Christ longs for you to see his glory. John Owen, uh, the great reformer and Puritan preacher said it this way. He said, oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live, herein would I die, hereon would I dwell in my thoughts and my affections until all things here below, all things on the earth, become as dead and deformed things and in no longer any way calling out for my affections. That's transformation. And that's freedom. To no longer the desire the things that rob us from flourishing because they have shriveled underneath the all-surpassing beauty of the glory of Christ. That's transformation. That, that's, that, is, that is what we as followers of Jesus must be pursuing, this idea that, that not an idea, this reality that, that as we behold the beauty and the glory of Christ, he becomes more beautiful and more wonderful and, and more awe-inspiring, and we long for it more and more and more and more. There's, there's nothing I wouldn't give to, to get more of it. There wasn't, there's nothing I wouldn't give to, to sit in it a little bit longer. And everything else in this world, every other sinful desire begins to shrivel underneath its weight. Because there's nothing like it. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more wondrous than that. And the glory of the Lord begins to transform us from the inside out. And we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord. It transforms us into his image. Beholding the glory of Jesus transforms us into the same image which we behold. We become what we behold. We become like Jesus. Friends, so there's a, there's a fancy word for all of this that we're talking about. It's called sanctification, okay? Um, and the doctrine of sanctification, um, even though that's, a, that's like a big word and uh, you, you might be like, ah, I'm not, I'm not smart enough or whatever, you are. And it's actually really, really important. The doctrine of sanctification and justification are important things to understand. You see, what happens, what happens when we become a follower of Jesus is in a moment, in, in, the, in, in an instant, 
the moment we give our lives over to Christ, we have not got it all figured out. We, we, don't, we don't know the Bible backwards and forwards. Um, and we, we, we got still, we got still got tons of sin in our lives. Like we are, we're jacked up people. But we've, we've come to this place where we said, and I can't do this alone. I can't. I need a Savior. Justified. The moment you come to grips with the reality of your sin and you begin to release your grasp on the things of this world, you say, I need to cling to Jesus. Justified. Right? To be made right before God, to, for justice to be placed over you. You are justified. There is no longer, there's no longer any condemnation that lies over your life. You've been freed from the weight, from the penalty of your sin. You are now freed from that. There's, you no longer need a Savior because you have a Savior. There's no longer, you no longer need sacrifice because you have a sacrifice in Christ. You no, you no longer need a, a priest to, to bless you because we have a high priest in Christ. And in an instant, in a moment, we are justified. But then, over the course of our life, we are being sanctified from one degree of glory to another, just as Paul talks about, into, his, into that very image, into the image of Christ. And this is, this is a bumpy ride. Some days it feels like you're on an elevator, just like being lifted up. You're like, this is amazing. And other days it's like a slog in the desert. Like, this is so unbelievably hard. But every moment, year by year, month by month, decade by decade, we are being transformed into his likeness. And it's, it's not this like straight shot. Like, here's justified. It's not this straight shot. It's like this bumpy, crazy road of like, oh my gosh, life is terrible. Okay, we're getting better. And like, just constantly moving up towards the likeness, the image of Christ. Over time, we are being transformed into the image that he's already transformed us into. He's already declared, you are clothed in my righteousness. And over time, he's transforming us into that likeness. Sanctification is the act of God by which, through his spirit, he is conforming you into the image of his son. As we behold Jesus, as we follow Jesus, the spirit is working in us to transform us into his likeness. We become like Jesus as God makes us more like Jesus, not as you make yourself more like Jesus. We need the spirit of Christ in our lives to transform us into his likeness. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes it this way. He's talking about justification and sanctification. He writes this in Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, it's the offering of Christ on the cross, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In a, in a moment, you are perfected. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For all time, all of your past sin, all of your present sin, and all of your future sin, when you fail tomorrow, perfected. When you fail a year from now, perfected. That thing in your past from years ago that is on repeat in your mind, perfected. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And there's nothing that you can do to escape that. You've been made perfect before him. 
But who is he doing that? Who did he, who did he do that past tense? Who did he do that to? Those who are being sanctified. So, so those who are on this journey, this bumpy, crazy road to perfection, he's already perfected. Right, so he is someday he will get you to the place that he already has you. Someday he's gonna get you to the place that he already has you. Now, I know that sounds funny. It's like, wait, he's already taken me there, but I'm going there. Yes, y- yes, you're already here. You, you've already been completely, totally justified. But he is from one degree of glory to another, perfecting us, transforming us into his likeness. This is what it means to become like Jesus. And to to have a life that is marked by a flourishing, we must be walking on this path to sanctification. Now, how do we do that? And how does that lead to flourishing? Well, those are the things we're going to talk about over the next two, two weeks together. Like, what does this actually look like? And how does this actually lead to flourishing? Friends, this morning is simply this. It's, it's a call to help, the call to say, I can not do this alone. And so let's do this. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. Let's bow our heads. And let's, let's go to our Savior. Let's go to Jesus, each one of us where we are. And, and I don't know where you are on this journey. I, I, maybe you've never Come to him. Maybe the veil is still over your heart. It's still over your mind. You're like, I don't, none of this makes sense to me. Maybe you just need to go to Christ and say, lift the veil. Help me to see. Help me to see your beauty. Help me to see your glory. Help me to see my need for you. Others of us in this room, it's been years since we've thought about our own sanctification. And you've been running in this hamster wheel of faith, trying to do all the right things under your own power. You've bought into religious lies. You've, you've said, okay, there's a carrot. I'm going to follow them. There's promises. I'm going I'm to get these promises of God if I just do these right things. Or, or I'm going to avoid the wrath of God by doing all these right things. If I just do all the right things, then God will be happy with me. He has perfected in a single offering. He has perfected. There's nothing, there's nothing you're going to do to earn his favor or to thwart his wrath. Nothing you can do. It's all completed in the grace of Christ on the cross. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. It's that same grace that leads me home. So let us turn our gaze to that grace. Let us recall our need for that grace every day of our lives. We need the grace of Christ to lead me home. Stop. Stop running. Stop trying to be somebody that you're never going to be. Embrace the freedom of Christ. Embrace the grace of Christ. 
lift your gaze to see the glory of the cross. And may all your sinful desires shrivel underneath its weight. Jesus, we come before you this morning and there is is none like you. There's never been nor will there ever be anyone like you. We are in desperate need of a Savior. So would you lift the veil from our hearts and our minds that we might see that need. That we might know that there's nothing that we can do that's ever going to free us from our brokenness. There's nothing that we can ever do that's going to earn the favor of God. There's nothing that we could ever possibly do that's going to thwart the wrath of God in our life. It is is coming for us. Unless by a single offering we might be perfected for all time as we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into your likeness, into the same image. Help us to see what it means to become like you. I pray these things in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus, amen.